We're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John this morning, and we are in chapter 9. A couple weeks ago, we started chapter 9. We're going to finish it this morning, and if you remember, as we kind of brought chapter 8 to a close and we talked about everything that's in chapter 8, it took us several weeks to get through that chapter alone. Jesus has some very blunt conversations with the the group of Jews that were critical of his identity there, and it leaves us asking the question, if God's chosen people, God's own chosen people, who had received the law and the promises and knew of the coming Messiah and were anticipating his coming, if those people were so spiritually blind as they stood in front of the Christ that they could not recognize the I Am as he stood before them, if that's the reality then what hope is there for any of us? How do any of us really see clearly what truth is when it's presented to us? And chapter 9 gives us the answer to that profound question. And as we began chapter 9, let me just uh, familiarize ourselves again with what this chapter says in the first seven verses. So John chapter 9, starting in verse 1, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As we talked about last week, this wasn't because of what anyone had done, but in order to show what what God was about to do. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of of the world, and that light was about to shine brightly, and that work was about to be done in front of their very eyes. So, in verse 6, after saying this, Jesus does something rather unusual. He spits on the ground and he made some mud with his saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. And he said, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and he washed, and the result was what? He came back seeing. This man's sight had been restored, and it's an incredible story, and we got to that point in the text a couple weeks ago, but what I want to do today is continue on, finish this chapter up, and look at the remarkable things that happen as a result of what Jesus did in this man's life. And there's three things that I think are are worthy of pointing out before we go on into the text any further. Number one is that this is a rather unusual chapter in that it's a chapter about Jesus, but Jesus disappears from the chapter for a while. And so Jesus doesn't appear again until the very end of the chapter. This is a chapter about this man and what happens to him as a result of this healing, but yet and still it's all about Christ. And what John is doing in every chapter in this gospel, which is masterfully getting us, the reader, to ask deep and meaningful questions about the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? The second thing I want you to see is that this poor guy... Imagine being in his situation and having your sight restored when you've never been able to see before. Imagine that. Just just coming to terms with what sight is like. This new sensation you've never had before. What would you want to do in that moment? Celebrate, right? You would want to celebrate in that moment, and yet this poor guy doesn't have an opportunity to celebrate. Because all people want to do is put him on trial and find out more about what happened to him. So he's not even given a chance to celebrate. And I think that's worth considering this man's journey. And the third thing I want you to think about is what we're really going to spend the bulk of our time doing this morning is thinking about that journey. This is a journey into faith. This man starts off not knowing much and ends up making profound statements of faith. He starts off by saying, I don't know. 
And he ends up by saying, Lord, I believe. And I want you to see that journey as it unfolds. So let's work through the text together. And we're going to start here in verses 8 and 9. So what happens next is his neighbors are blown away by the change they see in this man. And they're, they're so caught off guard by the drastic change that they're not even sure it's him. So it says, picking up in verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, and others said, no, he only looks like that guy. But he himself insisted, no, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. And he replied. So his first response is he's just telling them all he knows in this moment. Remember, this is a rather brief encounter with Jesus. He's still trying to wrap his own head around everything that just took place. And so he just says what he knows at this point in time. The man they call Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and then I could see. And that's all he knows to say in that moment. And that should be enough. But this is their follow-up question. Where is this man, they asked him. And it just illustrates in a minute here, his response, the fact that he's not a disciple yet. This man's life has been changed by an encounter with Christ, but he's certainly not a Christ follower yet because Christ followers know where Jesus is because they're always with Jesus. This man just has this to say, where is this Jesus who healed you? And he says, what? I don't know. I, I don't know. And again, he's just speaking from what he knows. At this point in time, all he knows is this guy Jesus showed up, put mud on my eyes, told me to wash, and now I can see. But I don't know where he is. And so the first real statement he makes about Jesus is, I don't know. And that's kind of where we all start, isn't it, in our journey to faith. But then this happens. So this is the next thing as his journey to faith unfolds. It says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. So now... His neighbors have seen what's happened. Well, now we got to take him to the Jewish authorities and they have to figure out what happened because we all know the authorities have to put their stamp of approval on this before the healing really is legitimate, right? It's not enough to just see that this man has been changed. The authorities have to approve of it. And so they brought the man to the Pharisees. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, this is significant because the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was what day? It's the Sabbath, right? And we talked about how unusual it was that Jesus spit in the ground and made mud. Why did he do that when he could have just spoken healing upon this man? And I mentioned in our last study that I think the reason, part of the reason at least, is because he's being intentionally provocative. He knows that by spitting on the ground and making mud, he is breaking one of the laws of the Mishnah, one of the Sabbath laws that you could not knead, knead with a, a K, like the way you would mix water and flour together, and knead bread. So he is, in effect, purposely breaking their traditional Sabbath law in order to get a reaction out of them. And this is the reaction. So the day is the Sabbath, and so this is their response. Therefore, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. Okay, how did he go about doing it? He healed you, but did he do it the proper way? He put mud on my eyes, the man replied. And I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. Why? Because he does not keep the Sabbath. Yes, he healed him, but he didn't do it the right way. 
And so he cannot possibly be from God. And I just want you to think for a minute about the kind of mindset that would lead to that reaction. That we understand God so much and so well that God can only operate according to our understanding of him. Right? God came and did a work in front of us, but he didn't do it the way that we said he should do it, therefore it can't really be God at work in front of us. It's easy to get critical of that kind of thinking, but do you think we've ever, any of us in our lives, ventured into that territory before, where we are certain that we know the parameters of the way God can work, and therefore anything outside of those parameters, that has to go through us first. We have to approve of God's behavior. The Pharisees aren't in that kind of position. They don't hold that kind of authority. They don't get to decide how and when God works, but that's exactly, exactly what they're doing in this moment. So that's one reaction, but there's another reaction, which says this. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? They're focused on what he did. Not how he did it, but what he did. How can you say he's not from God in light of what we just witnessed him do? And so they're divided. Those are the questions they're asking. So they turn again to the blind men, and I find this very interesting. They can't agree amongst themselves, so well, let's ask the guy. Let's ask this guy what he thinks based on what he just experienced. What have you to say about him, they ask. It was your eyes that he opened, and the man replied, he's a prophet. You can see the journey already, right? He's starting to think critically through the process. Who could this man really be? Well, I guess what he did must have come from God, so he must be, at the very least, he must be a prophet. That's all this guy knows at this point in time. But the journey continues. So they still aren't satisfied. They still don't believe that he had really been blind and had really received his sight. So they go and they send for the man's parents. Okay, we need somebody to vouch for this guy's identity and to prove that he really was blind. Maybe the whole thing's a setup. Maybe we've been conned. So they go and they send for the man's parents. Is this your son? They ask them. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? So this is their response. We know that he is our son. And we know that he was born blind. So there's the verification they're looking for. Right? They're vouching for him. Yes, this is our son, and yes, he was born blind. But here's what they don't know. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. Let him speak for himself. And it seems like a perfectly logical response, except John gives us some more information about what these parents were thinking at the time. So this is what John says. He says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that's not a minor thing to have happen. Okay, you're, you're cast off from every bit of the, the way that you are connected to society at the time to be cast out of the synagogue. That's, that's a, a life-altering event. And so they're terrified that they might say the wrong thing, associate themselves with Jesus, and therefore face that kind of reprimand from the Jewish leaders. And so it says, that's why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Did what any good parent would do, right? They just let the blame fall on their child. <laughs> right? But they're terrified, and for good reason. 
But I think John, again, so masterfully in the way that he tells these stories, is inviting us to think about where we would fit into this story. Would we be like his parents? So concerned about the way people might approve of what we're doing that we're afraid to fully associate ourselves with Jesus the Messiah? Or are we so bold in our faith as to stand before them and claim him, regardless of what that might mean? Now, we don't face exactly the kind of situation today, but I, I know those of you who have followed Christ for any meaningful amount of time in your life, there have been those moments in your life, haven't there? Where to claim association with, with Christ means that you put yourself at odds with the group of people that you find yourself with. And in those moments, your faith is tested, isn't it? How firmly are you convicted in the identity of Jesus? So a second time, they bring the man before them, okay, that we've heard from his parents, but they can't tell us anything meaningful about Jesus. Let's bring him before us again. And this time, they're not asking him a question. They're kind of feeding him the information they need him to verify. And I don't know why they need that, just to make themselves feel better, I guess, but this is what they say. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. This man ends up inadvertently becoming a great evangelist. I don't know whether he's a sinner or not, but this is what I know. I was blind, and now I see. This man is doing something profound here. He's speaking out of experience. Because his experience is all he knows at this point in time. I have heard some unbelievably profound sermons in my life from men who have spent their entire lives dedicated to knowing and understanding Scripture, and they speak out of a wealth of knowledge and wisdom, and they can articulate so powerfully the reasons for their conviction in Jesus. But I've also experienced I've experienced just as profoundly sermons that weren't preached from a pulpit. From people who don't know Scripture because they haven't had time to dedicate themselves to it. All they know is what they have experienced. All they know is the healing that they have found in Christ. And out of that healing, they can speak in a way that we forget sometimes, is so powerful. Listen to what this man says. I, I'm, not, I, I don't, I'm not in a position to speak to this man's character, he says. Not at this point in time, anyway. This is all I can tell you. I was blind, now I see. And it's because of this man that that happened. Sometimes, I think, especially as we mature and we grow in our faith, we lean so heavily into the academic aspect of our faith, that we forget about how profound experience can be. It's so powerful sometimes just to tell people how Jesus saved you. And I know we, we don't like the idea of witnessing in the church, and we kind of shy away from that. And I'm not saying that that becomes the only way that you tell the story of Jesus, but how profound is it to just be able to tell someone, look, this is what I really know about Jesus. I was this, and now I'm this. And to show them that in your life. 
and to let them deal with the ramifications. Maybe before you ever became a Christian, you were moved by someone in that situation, a family member or a close friend or somebody you worked with who was so profoundly changed by their encounter with Christ Jesus that they would not shut up about it. And it forced you to think critically about who he was. And in so doing, you had your own encounter with Christ. I'm just suggesting to you, don't be so eager to tell people how much you know that you forget about what you've experienced. Share that experience with them and live it out so they can see it. So whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now he's already told them and he's about to remind them of that fact. And I I like this guy. I got to be honest. Like something about his response here just makes him seem like I would really like to know this guy. I like him. He's a funny guy. He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. I, just, I love the boldness of him, right? Unlike his parents, he's not intimidated at all by the fact that he's standing in front of the Pharisees right now. Because he was blind earlier in the day and now he can see. And I guarantee if that was you, you wouldn't care a whole lot about what people thought about it either. You're just excited that you can see. I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And that was the wrong question to ask, right? And these guys got triggered. Then they hurled insults at him and they said, You, you are this guy's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. And you see, that's the dichotomy in their mind. That, that was... That was the way that they were thinking about this whole thing. We are either disciples of Moses or we're disciples of this guy called Jesus, but you can't be both because Jesus is somehow doing something in opposition to the law of Moses, even though he absolutely was not. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the, the guy who can see is not done yet. The man answered, now isn't that remarkable? You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. And nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Or the ESV says that never since the beginning of the world has anyone heard of this kind of thing happening. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see the journey, this man? And it's such a short period of time from I don't know where he is, I don't even know whether he's a sinner, to you know what? No, I do know now. <laughs> now you've given me a chance to think about this. Now I'm certain this man could do nothing if he were not from God. And all of the Pharisees were moved to tears and, and repented in the moment. No, not really. It says, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And do you see what John is doing here, right? This whole conversation about who can see and who can't. Here's a man who's never been able to see in his life, but now he sees clearly who Jesus is. Versus a group of people who've spent their whole lives convinced they can see clearly, and they can't see a thing. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? We're the ones who can see here, blind man not you. And they threw him out. And Jesus enters the story again. 
And we get one last statement from this man. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, and I want to stop there for just a second. I want to focus on those words. When he found him. If you're here this morning, chances are it's because at some point in your life, Jesus found you. And I think it's worth just spending a minute thinking about that terminology and that way of framing our relationship with our Lord. Because oftentimes we do the opposite. We talk about how we found God. Well, that's a kind of a silly way of thinking about it, isn't it? He found us. And he finds us right when we need him to find us, doesn't he? For this man, what does he have? He's got this experience. Everyone's called into question. He just wants to celebrate, but he's being you know, badgered about how it is that took place. And now as a result of this, he's just cast out by the Pharisees. And you've got to imagine he's walking out of there totally bewildered by what has happened in his day. And yet, in that moment, Jesus finds him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And in a later lesson, we'll spend some more time talking about that title, Son of Man, and what that means. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And this man who started off saying, I don't even know where he is, says this. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And he worshipped him in that moment. This is true conviction. This is true belief to bow down and worship at the feet of this man. A man who he had never met before. A man who turned his whole world upside down. A man who found him when he needed to be found. A man who gave him sight. When he finds out who he really is, he says, I believe. And he bows down and he worships. And then this happens. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And that might seem like a tricky turn of phrase at first, but think about what we just saw unfold in this chapter. The Jewish authorities who were so certain that they were seeing God's word with clarity turn out to be the ones who don't understand anything. And this man who's never seen a thing in his life is bowing down at the feet of Messiah in belief. For judgment I have come into this world so that what? So that the blind may see and that those who see will become blind. And that's exactly what just transpired in this chapter. And then the Pharisees, suddenly a light bulb goes off. And again here, I think John is inviting us to ask this same question. So the Pharisees who were with him and heard him asked this, What? Are we blind too? And I, I like to think at least that this is a sincere question, that something has, has finally caught on in their minds. And they suddenly realize what he's getting at in all of this. Are you suggesting that we are the blind ones? And it gives us an opportunity, every one of us, to ask that same question of ourselves. Are we the blind ones in this story? Or have our eyes been opened? 
And then this is Jesus' response. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. You're so confident in your ability to see that you stand there guilty still because you refuse to let your eyes be opened. As we bring this chapter to a close, I'd like you to think about this. So recently I had an opportunity to attend um, an event that was hosted by um, a company whose products I have bought in the past. And it was an event just to kind of say thank you to, you know, to, to people who've supported them. And it was really a, a celebration of everything that this company is and stands for. And they pulled out all the stops to make sure that everybody there loved the company even more. And the end goal is to do what? To win your faithfulness, right? You've got other companies like us that you can purchase from, but we need you to be faithful to us so that we can succeed where our competitors fail. The reason I bring that up is because I, I was sitting through this presentation and I was thinking about how much that experience mirrors modern-day American Christianity. You look at the Christian landscape, and there's all these different churches that are competing against each other. At least that's the way it seems like. And the experience that we've crafted in American churches is that we need patrons more than anything. We need customers who will be faithful. And so let us do all of these things to try to convince you that our church is better than the other church so that you'll be faithful to this church and not to that church. And, and everything we do is about church. Now, the preacher is not diminishing the importance of church today. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I am trying to suggest to you is that one of the things that we need to have our eyes open to is exactly what John is doing for us in the Gospel of John. And one of the reasons I'm so grateful that you're allowing me the time to work slowly and methodically through this Gospel is so that our eyes might be open to the reality that Jesus is Christ. Well, of course He is, right? That's why you're here today. But no, listen, Jesus is Christ. That changes everything. That is the foundation of everything. We are who we are because Jesus is Christ. Listen, let me read that passage again that Andy read for you this morning. And think about what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Do you catch that? The church is only important because the church is the body of whom? 
Christ, who is the head, who got raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of his throne with all power and dominion and authority. That is what we preach. We are not converting people to a church. We are bringing people to the Christ. This church, as much as I love it, is not what I am selling to the world as if it's a product to be consumed. I don't want to invite you to church. I want to invite you to know my Lord. And I hope you experience it through what His body does when we gather together as the church, but there's a world of difference between marketing the idea of your local body, the church, as if it's the greatest version of the church that's ever existed. There's a difference between that and saying, I was blind and now I see, and it's all because of the man Jesus Christ, and I want you to know Him. And that's what I want you to know through this series, is who Jesus is. I, I love this local body. I love what we do together. But as you go out into the world this week, don't try to convince people that your church is better than theirs. Just tell people about your Savior. And show them what He's done for you. Can you see clearly this morning? Or are you desperately trying to see truth? Do you want to know desperately what God's will in your life is? Jesus can open your eyes. And that's the invitation I extend to you on his behalf this morning. What can we do to serve you as you search for your Savior? He's looking for you, and he's ready to find you this morning. We submit to him in his love, in his power, in his grace, in his mercy, in his authority, in everything it is that we worship him for. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, if you're ready to give your life over to him, now is the time to do that. Let's stand. Let's sing. If we can serve you in any way, please come forward and let us know how.
to thee, prone to 